Thank you, Andrew. All right, good morning. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We have the teaching notes available online and in person as well. The message this morning is called Wisdom to Walk in the Rain, the Floods, and the Winds. I'm going to read this uh, portion of Scripture from Matthew 7, beginning in verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. It did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. Father, we come before you as your people, and we love you. We love your ministry. We love who you are. We love the word of God. We love how it refreshes, how it sustains, how it realigns our hearts. We ask today, Lord, that you would come and touch our hearts with the power of your word, that your word would wash us and renew us, that it would realign our heart and our affections and our focus and our emphasis, we ask you, Lord, that you would touch us by the power of your spirit, even this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this portion of scripture is the completion of Jesus' teaching, referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's one of the most critical and foundational teachings that Jesus gives us in the word of God. Some refer to it as the constitution of God's kingdom. Every kingdom has a constitution and laws by which it governs its citizens and causes them to abide by. And in a similar way, the Sermon on the Mount teaching from Jesus is that governing, powerful, directive force that guides the kingdom of heaven causes it to grow, causes the people of God to come to maturity. And Jesus culminates this teaching with this picture in Matthew chapter seven. And this picture of Matthew chapter seven is a call and a command to do and teach and obey the words that are written in this teaching. This teaching is the most comprehensive teaching about the Christian's role, our role, in partnering with the grace of God and walking with him in the Christian life. <clears throat> it is the litmus test to measure our spiritual development and maturity. In other words, to the degree that we embrace the teachings that are written here, and walk them out in a consistent way is the degree by which our hearts have grown and matured in love, spiritual maturity, spiritual understanding. Jesus calls it wisdom. He said there's only one way to do wisdom, and it's to walk in these teachings. And if you walk in these teachings, <clears throat> you apply them in a consistent way, you will not only be wise, but you will withstand the increasing trouble that is coming and the trouble that's already knocking at the door of every individual. Every person, every believer already has some manner of rain, 
floods, waters that are pounding on their house, pounding on their life, and challenging their faith in the Lord. We're called to <clears throat> hear these commandments, to teach these commandments, and to obey them. It's not just enough to know them and to hear a teaching on them or read them, memorize them, but we must, as believers, consistently obey them. And this is a mark of Christian maturity. So whatever it is that we envision of our lives in God related to Christian maturity and walking with Christ in a deep way, perfected love, all those sorts of things, we want to envision it as consistently walking in these values and teachings that Jesus lays out for us in these particular chapters. Our spiritual maturity will never surpass the degree to which we embrace and teach and obey these commands in the word of God. So spiritual maturity doesn't only come with age. Spiritual maturity doesn't only come with understanding or Bible knowledge or even the power of God. You can do many miracles and signs and cast out demons, heal the sick, and still be a spiritual babe if your life doesn't reflect and a reach for and an embrace and embodiment of these values and teachings in the word of God. Jesus finishes this teaching, Matthew chapter five, six, and seven, with these three metaphors. These three metaphors that are mentioned here at the top, the rain, the floods, and the winds, they symbolize increasing pressure that will come and test the faith and the life of every believer. Every person is under some measure of testing where there's a strained relationship. There's a damaged relationship. There's some sort of financial crisis, a health crisis. There's persecution, there's trial, there's trouble. Every person is facing this. And not only that, but there is increasing pressure and trouble that's coming, the word of God teaches us, and the generation that will see the Lord's return will enter into that greatest hour of pressure and testing that the earth has ever seen. And the Sermon on the Mount is not just how to be a nice Christian today, but actually a template and a model for how the body of Christ in the generation of the Lord's return is called to walk in him and with him. Obedience to these three chapters is the exclusive model for empowerment for believers, granting supernatural wisdom to remain faithful in the midst of opposition. And what I mean by exclusive model, what's the word again? Of empowerment. <laughs> what I mean by the exclusive model of empowerment is there's not another way in which Christians will walk in humble love according to the commands of the Lord in a way that's pleasing to him. There's not another option. This is the only option. This is the only way. And regardless of what pressure we're feeling, what trial we're undergoing, whether it's individual or corporate, whatever it may be, the only way forward is to embrace, teach, and obey these commands of Jesus in this passage of scripture. That's it. 
There's not, there's not a plan B. There's not an option B. It's like, well, I tried, you know, the Sermon on the Mount teachings, and we're going to look at a few of them in Matthew 5. It's not like I tried a few of those, but that didn't really work. So kind of desperate times call for desperate measures. We're going to throw out this. We're going to adopt a different model and a different way forward because the pressures of my life are so intense, they actually override Jesus' teaching here. It's kind of like, you know, in wartime, certain provisions are made to bypass the governance and law and, you know, executive orders and all that kind of stuff. It's been a while since I've had civics class, but I know that when missiles start to fly and carnage is breaking out, right, sometimes we bypass due process and we bypass certain laws or commands because the pressure is so intense. The Lord says there is no bypassing this. You can't bypass this. We can't set aside humility. We can't set aside love. We can't set aside some of these things we're going to look at. We can't set them aside simply because our life is under pressure. We can't do that. So we have to build a foundation now in our lives to where the word of God becomes rooted within us so that when the rains and the floods and the waters come and pound on our life, our faith in God and our relationship with him remains strong and it endures. <clears throat> the spirit of God is calling the church to develop these values within their heart. We're gonna highlight the B attitudes from Matthew 5, but the Lord is calling us to emphasize, to teach, and most importantly, to actually walk in these realities in our life as the pressure of culture and society rises like destructive waters. This is what he's calling us to. These eight B attitudes that we're gonna highlight in just a moment, they define what love, what godliness looks like what spiritual maturity looks like. We can't love God and completely ignore these teachings and never grapple with them, never reach for them, and never walk in them in any type of way. We can't say we love God and then not walk it out. We can't say we love God and then relate to one another in an opposite spirit of the teachings of God. That doesn't work. So he's calling us to wrestle with these to get a hold of them, to talk about them, to teach them, to equip in them, to reach for them, to walk in them more and more in the days ahead and presently. Paragraph E, the eight Beatitudes, we need them to become firmly rooted in our heart. We need it to be like that rock on which the house is built. You don't build a foundation overnight. If you're on a beach, standing on the sand, and the rain and wind starts pounding down on you, you have no chance of building some sort of structure with a solid foundation in the moment. That's why now the Lord is giving us time. He's giving us time to labor. He's giving us time to prepare. He's giving us time to put down roots within our own souls that are connected to the truth of God's word. He's giving us time. Roots don't grow overnight. 
Foundations are not laid overnight. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes intentionality. We have to intentionally do the things that Jesus commanded us to do so that our life is built upon a rock and can endure the winds of adversity that are gonna begin to blow. Some of these winds under paragraph E are the increase of fear. We're seeing within our culture, within our society, a rise of fear. People being motivated by fear, speaking out of fear, leading out of fear, reacting out of fear, planning out of fear. And fear is one of the key issues highlighted in the word of God by Jesus that's gonna increase in the days ahead. Matter of fact, Luke 21 tells us that men's hearts will fail them from fear in the generation of the Lord's return. People will be so overcome by fear that their heart, their life will completely break down, completely melt because of the increase of pressure. There's gonna be an increase of offense it's almost popular now to be offended. It's cosmopolitan. It's in vogue to be offended. Everyone's offended at everyone. You listen to the news. You listen to the media. You talk with people. Everyone is offended about something and letting everyone else know how offended they are and what measures they're willing to take in order to make their point about offense. Jesus warned of this. He said, offenses will come, but blessed is he who is not offended because of me, who stands with me, who stands with my teaching, who stands with my word, who stands for who I am and what I'm about in the face of offense and doesn't respond in a spirit of offense. See, the increase of lust. Lust is not limited to sexual immorality or sexual desire, but it is the internal coveting of all things that are temporary in this age. It's materialism, wealth, influence. The human heart is prone to want and desire all these things, and all of these things scratch a momentary itch of the soul. And the Lord warns us that as those floodwaters rise, there's gonna be great temptation into more and more expressions of lust. And then finally, deception. Jesus' primary warning in Matthew chapter 24 was that his people would not be deceived, that they would not take truth and mix it with the lie of the evil one, but that they would stay faithful to the teachings, the word of God. He prophesied later in that same chapter in Matthew 24 that it would be like the days of Noah, in the days of Noah, there was a literal flood that came and destroyed the ungodly and the wicked. And the Lord is warning us through his word. He's saying there's only one way to endure the floods of ungodliness that are gonna be released and unleashed in your generation. And I believe we're already in those days. You look around, you see the floods of deception, of lust, of fear, of offense, of deception that is gripping people. 
Just to look at what has changed within our culture even in the last year and a half in relation to these. The darkness that has been unleashed through lockdown and through media and people that are locked in their homes, you know, isolated from so many others and where the human heart goes under pressure without the grace of the Holy Spirit. Go back up to paragraph D. The Lord promises a blessing as we contend for and as we make it a point in our hearts and our lives. We're gonna walk in these values. We're gonna take the words of Jesus. We're gonna actually do them. We're not just gonna talk about them. We're gonna do them. He says, I'll release a blessing. The word blessing throughout the scripture, I don't have this in the notes. The word blessing often means to kneel before. So it's this picture the Lord says, when you kneel before me in obedience, I will come and kneel before you. I will serve you. I'll help you. I love the picture in John chapter 13 where it's the hour of darkness. It's the hour of pressure. It's the hour of betrayal. Jesus is going to the cross and he's gonna accomplish the will of God. His life is gonna be poured out as a sacrifice. And he could be telling his disciples anything in that moment. He could be equipping them, giving them swords, whatever it is to resist the evil one that's coming. And what, what do we see in John chapter 13? We see Jesus blessing his followers by kneeling before them and washing their feet. This is the way of God in the midst of pressure and darkness. Serving, humility, love, self-sacrifice. And these are some of the virtues and attributes that the Lord wants the body of Christ to grab a hold of in the midst of the increasing flood of chaos and confusion and evil. Turn over to page two. After Jesus gives these eight beatitudes, he refers to two metaphors of being salt and being light. And what he's talking about is he's talking about believers walking in a generational impact as they embrace and walk out the teachings of the Lord. Uh, what's interesting about these two metaphors is that often when you hear them quoted, they're not in the context of Jesus' Jesus's previous teaching on the eight Beatitudes that we're gonna look at. But when people are urged to be salt and light, what's often represented is, is that the church is supposed to rise up and fight back the anger and the rage of society with a commensurate rage and anger. The rage and anger of society to break away from the word of God, from the teaching of the scripture, Psalm chapter two, is often met with the same attitudes, the same tone of voice, the same demeanor. And that is not what Jesus is saying here in this teaching. As if being salt and light means to cast aside all of the previous teaching that he had just laid out in the Beatitudes and take up some new personality trait online to comment and disagree with people. When he says to be salt, he doesn't mean go be salty. 
He's not saying, hey, get a little bit cynical. Kind of get jazzed up, get angry at whoever you're angry at, get angry at the other side, whatever side that is. And then just kind of like take your two pieces of truth, wield it like a sword, get online, get on the comment section of YouTube, get on the comment section of whatever church you're watching online and just whip that, that sword around. It's time to be salty, baby, let's go. That is not what Jesus is saying. That is not what he's talking about at all. <clears throat> he's saying to be salt and light, you do the beatitudes. That's what it means to be salt and light. You can't be salt and light without doing the teaching that he's actually talking about doing. You're only salt and light when you're walking in the teaching that he's laying out here and doing it consistently, not just one weekend. So I want us in our minds, in this talk of being salt and light within our culture, shining for truth, shining for what is right, and all that, we can't disconnect that from the teaching to be meek, to walk in humility, to be poor in spirit, to mourn. Some of these things we're gonna look at. We can't disconnect the two. And it's only when we walk in those things that we are truly salt and light. So it's to inform and to shape. He say, he's, he's saying, Jesus is saying, this is an outcome. When, when my teaching informs what you're doing, the way that you talk, the way that you live, the way that you serve, he says, then you will be salt and light. But salt and light is not the means. Salt and light is the end when we do his teaching, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's look at some of these Beatitudes. Presently, these values are disappearing from the church, in particular, the Western church. Less and less you hear emphasis and teaching on these values, and you hear less and less of believers encouraging one another to walk in these things. And yet Jesus is not going to let them disappear from his bride because he is the head of the church, which is the body of Christ, his bride. And he's gonna have a pure and spotless bride. He is making her ready by the Spirit he is purifying her love. He's not gonna let the body of Christ get away from these core, foundational, essential commands. Rather, he's going to begin to emphasize them more. He's going to send the pressure necessary, the anointing necessary, the trials that are necessary, the breakthrough that is necessary in order for the church to walk in these essential values because these values define what it means for the body of Christ to walk in love and for the bride to be prepared for the bridegroom, Jesus. He is going to awaken the lukewarm church to re-engage re with these essential kingdom values. You know, during our 40-day fast that we had back in the spring, the Lord was emphasizing the Laodicean spirit to us as a spiritual family. 
And the Lord really is going to deliver his people from that Laodicean lukewarm spirit and cause the fire and the passion and the love of the body of Christ to burn brightly. But he's not going to do it through some other means or some other way. Like he's going to give us the four steps of how to do it you know, in the year 2022, like here it comes, do these four things and then you're out of the lukewarm spirit. No, it's this. He goes, I'm calling you to this. I'm calling you to, to what I've said. It's a return. It's a return to me. It's a return to my values. It's a return to my heart. It's a return to your first love. It's a return to the passion that you've lost, the presence that you've lost. Return to me. The first beatitude that he gives, we're gonna look at these. Matthew 5, verse three. Jesus says this, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the foundational beatitude from which all others flow. We are consciously to be aware of our spiritual need and our dependency upon God. And you might say, well, I had a conscious need of dependency upon God last year when I, you know, lost X amount of money in some business deal. I was consciously aware of my need for God years ago when I gave my life to Jesus because I needed to be saved. I was aware of my conscious need because one of my children fell ill and was sick and I needed God to heal them and break through. But to be poor in spirit is not just circumstantial. It is a lifestyle. It is an orientation that every believer is called to embrace. It's to be at the forefront of our mind. It's to inform all of our activity. It's to inform all of our words. It's to inform all of our needs. We desperately need God. We need his spirit to flow through us. John 15, I am the vine, ye are the branches. Abide in me. If we're not connected into God, then the sap, the anointing of the spirit, the power of God cannot flow through our life. If we're disconnected from the vine, we can do nothing, Jesus says. If we don't abide in him, we can do nothing. And so is our orientation a desperation, a desperate need for the things of God, the breakthrough of God, the power of God, the love of God, the provision of God, on and on and on. That's to be our orientation. That's to be our first thought when we wake up. I desperately need you. I love the verse in Zechariah chapter four. It's a familiar verse. He says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. See, the might and the power of man can only go so far. The might and the power of man can only accomplish so much. The might and the power of the believer can only take us so far without the spirit of God Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. It's all vanity. We can do all the works, sing all the songs, memorize the Bible passages, but, in, 
lest we are oriented with an impoverished spirit, a dependency upon God. God, I need you and I want you. Help me, God. Unless that becomes our heart cry, then we've just done might and power, but there is no spirit. We can walk in the flesh. We can do works in the flesh. We could call it kingdom, but it still be the flesh unless there is a dependency upon the spirit of God. And it's easy. It's easy in our day to get comfortable. It's easy to just become familiar. We go to church. We hear a nice message. The worship is good. The teaching is good. We've got YouTube. You can hear amazing preachers and speakers from all over the earth. We've got iTunes. We've got Apple Music. You just click Christian Music Essentials. Boom. It's just there. And you're just, oh, isn't life just so nice? And we forget that we desperately need God, that he's not here in person. Jesus is not on the earth. The presence of God is not always fully manifest. Our love is weak. Our works are weak. Our works are often powerless in terms of what's available through the gospel of grace. And to be poor in spirit is to see that need and acknowledge that need. Lord, I desperately need you. And one of the beauties of Christian maturity is that the older we get, the more dependent we get. You talk to a faithful old saint, you know, and they used to write these old hymns, these old songs, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. How are you doing? I'm leaning. The bride that's depicted in the Song of Solomon story, she's coming up in mature love. Guess what she's doing? She's leaning on her beloved. We imagine maturity as independence, self-reliance, self-strength. That's exactly what Jesus died to deliver us from. We imagine that being a mature Christian means that we never face temptation anymore. We've overcome in all things. That all the sickness is gone, all the pressure is gone, all the, all the trials are gone. And that's exactly not true. Christian maturity is deeper dependence, deeper leaning, deeper desperation, deeper, poor in spirit. My spirit is impoverished. And the reason that many don't orient themselves in this way is because they don't see their spirit as impoverished. They don't see their life as impoverished. They got everything they need. Jesus is just another add-on to their life. It's just an upgrade. And he calls us to be poor in spirit. Number two, Matthew 5, verse 4. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We mourn because we see the gap of what God has for us and what we're presently experiencing. We mourn. To be poor in spirit means that we see the gap. What is available in God? How much of God can I really have? How much can I have of the Holy Spirit? And the scripture puts no boundary on that. Matter of fact, Jesus in Luke 11, he says, how much more of the Holy Spirit will he give to those who ask? And whether you're 95, as long as you're, you keep asking, you could keep getting more 
of the Holy Spirit, encountering more of who God is because he's a vastless, endless ocean. So to be poor in spirit means that we see the distance and to mourn means that we feel the distance. We connect with it. It bothers us. It bothers us. You know, the bride that's waiting for the bridegroom to come, how terrible and tragic it would be for her to just kind of get busy with her life. It's kind of, she has her friends and all of her emotional needs are met. She's got the provisions she needs. She's got a nice little living situation. Everything's taken care of, but the bridegroom is not there. Imagine if the bridegroom showed up and he, she, she was like, I just kind of forgot about you. I didn't really, like, I knew you would come one day, like, that's good, but I wasn't longing for you. Every bride that is in love with her betrothed is longing for the day that they will be joined. Things are incomplete. And she's called to embrace that incompleteness and to feel it, to mourn over it. Not just him, but what's available in him and the riches of his glory. I mean, have you read what's available to us in the word of God, the book of Ephesians? It'll blow your mind. I read that and I'm like, God, I don't even connect with half of what this means. It's not even real to me. And I'm cranky and tired and I need more coffee and I'm just like, why am I in Grandview? And Paul's going, no, 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 the riches of his glory. There's riches to be apprehended. There's riches to be experienced in the interior life at God where we experience the delight and the joy and the satisfaction and the love of God. And then we partner with the Holy Spirit to see his kingdom manifest in our friends, in our relationships, among our adversaries, in our neighborhoods, at our jobs. There's so much more to be had. And when we see the gap, would you ever read the Bible and see the gap? Like where, where Peter, and, you know, they're walking and the shadows falling on people and, and healing them. Like I see the gap, that's not happening to me. We're supposed to mourn. What's interesting, uh, what strikes me about this verse is that the generation of the Lord's return is gonna see the greatest outpouring of power and miracles and signs and wonders, and yet they will mourn deeper than any other generation. Think about that. Because a lot of times we imagine that the mourning will be answered by some power, by some revival, by some incredible miracle, like we see a dead person get raised and we're like, woo, like we don't have to mourn anymore. And yet if mourning is the, the sign of perfected love, of mature love, and the generation that's gonna see the Lord's return will be that perfected generation, then in the midst of the greatest signs and wonders and miracles, they will mourn and long for the bridegroom. Matthew 9 tells us that, that we're to mourn the bridegroom because he's been taken away. He's not here with us. And it's okay to feel longing and sadness for him. It's godly to do that. Paragraph 
okay. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness is when we put our power and influence, our money, our personality, is when we put it under restraint for the sake of others. Meekness is not weakness or passivity. It is not a characteristic or a personality trait. It's not being mousy and quiet and shy. Meekness is not about that. It's about harnessing strength so that others can experience the grace and the glory of God. The greatest picture of this is Christ himself. Because he's the most powerful, I mean, he's the God of the cosmos. He's been around forever. <laughs> he knows it all. I mean, he just knows every thought. Do you ever think, like, why didn't Jesus just use his prophetic gifting and just rip the Pharisees to shreds? Like a few times, it says that he knew their thoughts and he would respond in accordance with what they were thinking. It freaked them out. But I think the salty Christian in me, <laughs> it's just like Jesus just, just rip them to shreds. Just get in there. Just air out the journal. Just dress them down. Here's what you think. Here's what you're doing, you hypocrite. You liar. You deceiver. Here's your lust. Here's your anger. I just ripped them to shreds. You know why he did it? Meekness. You know, God is the God, Psalm 104 tells us, that clothes himself in light. It says that he's wrapped in light as a garment. He actually uses light to restrain the light of his own glory and power. He actually uses meekness so that when he shows up, even the brights that are on in his glory are still toned down, restraining the brightness of his glory. Who does that? Who restrains the brightness of their glory with more brightness and glory? God does, Psalm 104, because of meekness. Because if he were to just pull back the veil and just shine his unfettered, beautiful, majestic light, I mean, the, the whole cosmos would burn up before him. Nothing could withstand the light and the power of who God is. Jesus turned on the high beams for the disciples in Matthew chapter 17 in the transfiguration, they're up on the mountain. He's like, you three come with me. I'm gonna show you something. And they're like, okay. And they go up on the mountain. Jesus just goes, flashes on the high beams, you know? And what do they do? They all hit the deck. I mean, they're so overcome. They're like, what? Who is, what is, who are you? What's going on? And Moses and Elijah are there and they're in full-blown idolatry. Peter is, he's like, let's make a tabernacle and worship all, worship all you guys. Great idea, Peter. <laughs> Jesus peels back the glory a little bit. His buddies show up and you're in full-blown paganism. Awesome. It's really what's happening. I mean, God restrains his power. He restrains it, and then he comes to us with such humility and tenderness. No form, no comeliness, Isaiah 53 tells us. He kneels down before us. He washes the feet of his own betrayers. Who is, who is this God? 
He goes, I want you to be meek like me. I want you to restrain the force of your argument, the force of your personality, the power of your money, the influence that you have. I want you to restrain it to serve others into greatness and glory in me. Use your strength, your gifting, your anointing, your talent to bring others to the feet of Jesus, to encounter him, to know him. I invite the worship team to come out. I'm gonna skip down to paragraph M. He says this, he says, blessed are the merciful, they shall obtain mercy. And in this beatitude, we're called to give what is not deserved to all. To receive mercy is to receive that which we do not deserve. When God gave us mercy, he held back what it is that we truly deserved. Suffering, torment under the wrath of God. God's full wrath and his fury against sin. That is what we were supposed to be subject to. God gave us mercy. He says, I'm not gonna make you subject to that. I'm gonna give you what you don't deserve. I'm going to hold back. And he calls us here, not just to the revelation of his own mercy, he calls us to walk in that same mercy towards others in our lives. Do you give people what they deserve? Do you always let people get what they deserve? You give it to them, you speak it, you shout it, you whatever. We live in a merciless culture. Right now, everybody is on the attack, giving each other what they deserve and worse. Where is mercy? And if the body of Christ is not gonna give it, where is it gonna come from? Where, were, well, where will the mercy come from? And, and Jesus is looking at his bride, he's going, you've received much mercy, now I want you to give much mercy. Be merciful. Be merciful to your adversaries. Don't give them what they deserve. Be merciful to your enemies. Don't give them what they deserve. Be merciful to your spouse. Don't give them what they deserve. Be merciful to your children. Don't give them what they deserve. Be merciful to your manager. Don't give them what they deserve. Show my mercy. Restrain. Restrain your words. Restrain the need for retribution. Restrain the need to be vindictive. Restrain the need for payback. Restrain the need for justice. God will give you justice. Submit it to God. Let him, let him sort it out. I tell you what, if a bunch of us got real merciful toward one another, toward our spouses, toward our roommates, toward our friends, and started restraining what people deserve and rather saying, mercy. I'm gonna give mercy. I'm gonna bless. I'm not gonna curse. I'm gonna call forth. I'm gonna speak life. I'm going to give generously. I'm going to go the extra mile. I'm going to turn the extra cheek. See, all of these are in Jesus' teaching here. And it's like, when a rubber meets the road, we don't really like that. 
I'm, I'm going to go the way of God. That's how he dealt with me. That's how I want to deal with others. Be merciful. Restrain ourselves. See, this is the only way forward. This is the only way forward for the body of Christ. There is no other way. There's no other plan. There's no other marching orders. Jesus goes, this is what I'm calling you to. This is how we walk out of lukewarmness. This is how we walk into deeper love. This is how we walk into deeper kingdom. This is how we be salt and light in our generation is by doing this and walking in this consistently. Let's stand. We're gonna finish up our time here. Holy Spirit, we love you, Lord. We love your ministry. We see the gap of what you've called us to do and where we're at in our hearts and in our lives. We see the gap. We're mourning. We're mourning. I'm mourning that I'm not mourning. This is where we're at. We're stuck. We're poor in spirit. We really need God. Hello? The body of Christ in this hour is meant to shine with the love and the glory and the power of God. Not get lost in disputes, bickering, backbiting, slander. Holy Spirit, we want to walk in the ways of the Lord. We want to be a people of wisdom built upon the rock. We know that you'll help us. We know that you'll help us, Lord. Just anyone in the room, you wanna recommit to these values in your own life. You're going, you know what? I looked at these at one time, kind of backed away from them to a, to a degree, but I wanna re-sign up in my own soul. I wanna re-sign up in my own family, in my own life. I want to walk these out. I'm going with Jesus on this stuff. I'm not gonna be informed by the culture and their attitudes and their opinion and their volume and their anger. I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna go the way of Jesus. I'm gonna go the way of meekness. I'm gonna go the way of the cross. This is where this goes. It goes the way of the cross. Pick up your cross, follow me. We pick up our own justice. We pick up our own rightness. We pick up our own vindictiveness. Go the way of the cross. Submit it to God. We go, Lord, it's in your hands. It's in your hands. I want to invite you to come to the front and stand on these lines right here. We have a ministry team that wants to minister to you. The Lord is touching your heart on these very things. You're going, I, I want God again. I want a vibrant life in Him again. We also want to take time to pray in the room for anyone that's sick in your body and you'd like to receive prayer for healing. I want to invite you to come up to the front as well. And if you wouldn't mind just telling the person that's going to come pray with you, just, hey, I need prayer for healing, if that's what you're up there for. That would really help us. I want to release our ministry team. Come and lay hands on these. There's a greater grace in God. There's a help of the Holy Spirit. He wants to help us walk in this because it's his name that's on the line. You 
bear the name of Christ as a Christian. This is, this is about him. This is about his glory. This is about his fame. This is about his light shining in our generation. Come Holy Spirit, would you help us? Father, I ask in the name of Jesus, old and young, old and young, that you would touch us by the power of your spirit, that we would walk in the ways of the Lord, that you would raise up men and women of wisdom in this hour, Lord, that would build a foundation upon you, that as the winds come, as the floods come, as the waters come and increase all the more, that we would stand on the rock of Christ, joined to you. Come Holy Spirit in your name. for folks up at the front we need a few more to pray if it's in your heart to do that even broader than that please come up to the front just lay a hand on someone just say more Holy Spirit help us Holy Spirit we love you
I believe. Help my unbelief. I knew shaking would come, but I didn't think it would shake me. me. 2020 was supposed to be clarity. I've never felt less clear. I was called to be a forerunner. I was called to be a forerunner and overcome. To go all in, ready for anything. What happened to my confidence? In these troubled times, you aren't alone. Confidence is never meant to come from your own strength. The answer to shaking is not to run, but to return. I can be confident in crisis. I can know my part. I can experience God. Join a fellowship of burning hearts in a unique gathering unlike any we've ever done. Now is the time to return. Just